0: Now back into the show.
1: Don't invest in a market just because it's hot or it's trendy, but know its exact valuation. Have a percentage, whichever way you derived it in your own approach. Have a percentage assigned to it. Know its valuation. Know why that matters. Where has that percentage been in before the global financial crisis? that has affected like subsequent declines etc so so yes just have a measure of market valuation is my advice
0: welcome to investing in the u.s a podcast for real estate investors business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the u.s market Join Reed as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys. And there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goossens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to readgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Stefan Svetkov, Stefan is the founder of RealtyQuant, a company that brings data-driven and quantitative techniques to the real estate industry. He's on a mission to add massive industry value through education, investment, technology, and analytics. He's a financial engineer turned multifamily investor. He's an analytics speaker, and he's a live webinar host, and he holds a master's degree in financial engineering from Columbia University. And during his finance career, he managed over $90 billion in derivatives in portfolios. I'm really excited and pumped to have him on the show today to share his incredible insight and experience with us. But enough out of me, let's get him out here. G'day, G'day Safan. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate?
1: Yeah, here thanks for having me.
0: Mate, my pleasure. Uh, great to have you on the show. I was on your show a little bit earlier mm-hmm. uh, in the year, or maybe it was even last year. It was really good to see you again, my friend. Before we get into your background, can you, uh, also you, what you're passionate about, I should say, mm-hmm. can you... Tell us how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. So I ask all my guests this question, and it really helps set the stage for how you grew up in in and around becoming
1: an entrepreneur. You know, that would be like in college, you know, that would be that that wouldn't be even as a kid. Like I yeah, I probably kind of I, I went to Columbia in New York and I like I rented like an apartment and I kind of I was living kind of rent-free from basically renting to my roommates. It was kind of a silly thing to do at the time, but I thought it's, you know, there's a difference I thought in the market rates. (laughs) And so I think that was actually the first like check that I collected. So it was kind of, was actually, I mean, coincidentally, I didn't, I wasn't in real estate for like 10 years after at all, but, uh, but it just coincidentally was actually a real estate check.
0: And that was through house hacking your rooms in the unit that you lived in?
1: That was kind of, yeah, that was just kind of being a, like the master person on the lease and kind of right. like roommates subletting yeah yep. subletting it's not yeah it's um you yeah, I don't recommend it for people. I was <laughs> I was 22 I didn't I didn't even know if it's permitted or not permitted to do but that but was I it. remember I actually collected like my first check of somebody actually oh somebody actually pays me. that actually helps you know my rent and whatever and it's like uh you know that it's was awesome. the first business income. Mm -hmm. That's that's incredible. Walk us through your
0: background, Stefan, because clearly you 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 have where you're from. You're not from this country like me. You've got a weird accent. So walk us through your upbringing and then the sort of the coming to America story.
1: Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. So so I'm Eastern European, Bulgarian specifically. Um, I came to the States at 22, so I came for my masters. Um, Like I did financial engineering masters. You know, kind of like pretty routine. I continued into a finance career. um, You know, for about a decade. So 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 that's how. I mean, I I wouldn't say I immigrated per se here, I was kind of like, I was looking at different schools, you know, I wanted to study in the UK or here or Switzerland, I was kind of like working between different places and just was more like a choice of, okay, the school that accepts me, at, okay, maybe that's going to be the best choice. So that's, that's what I did at the time. Awesome. And what, what has been, you, we talk about financial
0: engineering in your introduction, so what does that even mean? Like for those people out there, like I, I'm an engineer, I'm a structural engineer. That's my my background. I can put things together. I can build things. There's there, there's mechanical engineering. They put you know, cars together and make things turn. But financial engineering, what 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 the hell is that?
1: <laughs> well, um, I mean, if you think of like like some of these schools, they have like you know, things like operations research departments. And there's like people studying PhDs in that, or like industrial engineering departments. And so they use like certain mathematics methods, if you will, that are somewhat more applicable to finance. And so mm-hmm. if you think like things drawing out of operations research, like stochastic processes and stuff like that, and you know like most of the audience probably that would sound, would be new to them, um, but in a way uh, it's really any math and coding and technology that, was found applicable to finance through the decades, things like option pricing and the most famous thing, like black Show's equation for pricing options. So it's kind of like what's driving like some of the financial industry. And um, it's just quantitative, like math applied in finance, basically. Mm. Interesting. And can you
0: break it down for the listeners into what it means? What do you do on a day-to-day basis? Clearly, you're very good with maths. You're good with with numbers. How are you looking at numbers in a way that helps other businesses break it down into its parts to say, yes, this is, this is what you should avoid or or maybe just give us a, an overview of what your day looks like in, in the financial uh, engineering world.
1: Sure. Yeah. And just to clarify, Reid, I, uh, so that was, like uh, that was my prior career. So I came out of a financial engineering background and I'm a full-time real estate investor now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so that's what I've been doing now. But in the, in my finance career, it was just, um, you know, we have a portfolio, like derivatives portfolio and like for two audience derivatives that will be like options, futures, you know, like different contracts written on top of like the stock market or bond market. And and that, so, so it just had like, a, you know, a finance job, like managing the portfolio together with colleagues and it's kind of a very markets role, you know, like kind of very close to the markets, you know, you have a Bloomberg screen <laughs> whatever, you know, like things like that. So it was just like a very markets finance job. But I didn't want to, I always wanted to be like an investor myself and kind of like pursue my own thing. And, and I liked uh, real estate for that. And, and so first I kind of bought a fourplex, you know, like the usual house hacking, that's now the real house hacking, kind of house hacking story of like buy a fourplex or other multifamily, live in one unit, rent all the others. And I thought it's nice. And it was here in the New York City area, um, I live in New York. And so I thought it's a. Uh, it's always great, you know. There's leverage. You have cash flow. You can get some inefficiency in the price as well. So I thought it's always really good. So I started working into how I can utilize my skills, like use data and kind of um, apply my skills to the real estate industry. Awesome,
0: awesome. And, and and how has that been that transition into what you do today at your company, which uh, you know is is Realty Quant and, and in and around? Because we spoke a little bit before. We press record here. How you're using that financial engineering background in realty quant to help investors make smart decisions in and around whether markets are overvalued, which is a really important thing as an investor. You need to understand what's overvalued and what's not. And then, so maybe you can walk us through the genesis of realty quant and how it became to exist. In order to help the market make better decisions.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, great question. And the genesis was myself as an in private investor in the residential space, and I've been like transitioning more to commercial, like bidding on like a syndication now and so forth. Um, but uh, generally, an investor in the residential space in the New York City area doing kind of short term projects, like kind of flips. Let's say, like I would buy like. Um, fourplex in downtown Jersey, kind of like expensive, relatively expensive markets and kind of do like condominium conversions on those projects and things like that. And how do you discover like some of those deals with data? And so that was my goal. So I would write like, you know, write my Python scripts, you know, like Python is like one of the languages, like programming not just for your audience. And so and so I would write my Python scripts, you know, kind of to find deals and it could be on market, off market, you know, things like that. And then once I got my webinar, okay, now I would write even like some of those scripts to for marketing purposes, you know, like to get like various um, you know information online that could be useful uh, for marketing. And so and, and so really the approach was and the genesis was just to automate my daily life and kind of make it more scalable and more productive. So that was that was the approach, and it started out in the residential space, and then I've done like some modeling in commercial. As for overvalued markets. That's actually quite an interesting story. So, like, like, at the beginning of COVID, so I was concerned with, uh, you know, like, is are you know, what if the market takes a downturn? You know, that's kind of what many investors have this concern. So I went on, I looked on, like, what things have been done. And I found, like, you know, Ingo Windsor at Woco Market Monitor. It's like something that New Bau uses, for example, like their their service. And I looked up Bloomberg Economics and like a few other sources. And and so what I did is I built like a a model myself that was uh, just pretty simple, really, a linear regression model based on like real estate fundamentals of population, income, and housing supply, and kind of income plays a pretty key role. So, I just the goal was okay, where should where should prices be based on fundamentals? Where they're now? Do we have like is the real estate market overvalued? I try to answer this question in a in a in a relative, relatively rigorous manner. And what I think I did a little bit than some of the other guys, for some reason, they never were quoting the predictive power of this thing, such as how well did it predict, for example, the downturns caused the global financial crisis. And so that's what I did. So I did actually a model that served to look at, like, where should the real estate prices be and how well did it predict the, the global financial crisis drops in the U.S.? You know, if we, not, we, we look at it, it was like Arizona, Nevada, California, and Florida, like, probably, like, states, and then, like, specific markets within them were... The ones that dropped very much. And so I did a study that okay, they dropped like 40-50%. And then on the, they were overvalued on let's say affordability deviations versus a moving average window, which is very the simplest model of all. And from there built like other ones. But even in those terms, they were like overvalued by similar percentage, like, like 40 to 60 percent, you know, overvalued. And their drop was quite in line with that. And I was like stunned and like in and the correlation, in fact, at the state level was was about eighty-five percent, like eighty-three to eighty-seven percent, balance source, and so it was quite interesting to me. Okay, that people before the global financial crisis, and I've interviewed syndicators and like other investors, and some of them who were around at the time, and they were all saying, okay, you cannot predict it, and so forth. And yeah, sure, you cannot predict the magnitude of that, but to diagnose like the, an overvaluation is actually uh, quite statistically fundamental kind of invalid and, and doable. And the reason is I mean, real estate is a fundamental asset. It's driven by population income and housing supply, high level speaking, and so one is able to do it. And so that's what I did. So it had like, it showed that, okay, the very overvalued states in this framework uh, dropped dramatically over a period of four years after the states like Texas at the time, Texas was 5% undervalued in this framework, barely dropped, had a 4% dropped. And I was, um, you know, saying to people, okay, it's like actually like the um, places that were undervalued. And again, speaking of states, just to have this for 2,700 U.S. counties and one can do it at zip code level, etc. But uh, But really, um, you know, just like high level discussion. And so there were like 10 states at the time that were undervalued and um, they dropped only 4% during the Energy, of Africa, I found this is crazy, because I always thought, okay, that's like a big crash in real estate, it's like the biggest crash in US real estate history, but actually no, it's the only places that were overvalued, they dropped, and they dropped according to their overvaluation. And so real estate is a very stable thing, it seems, that has like a different downside risk profile than finance. And so it only drops if it kind of enters a bubble, and otherwise it would kind of stay the same. And like some examples of that are like, um, you know, some of the poor states, like West Virginia, Obama, Mississippi, where, okay, they are not strong markets, but they are, or markets they are not strong but but they actually have very little downside risk and they barely ever drop and so and so that's like quite interesting to see because it's a different dynamic in finance where we have penny stocks you know kind of undesirable stocks let's say and they will have very high volatility but it's not the case in university because that's people's housing you know they don't just sell their homes if something happens and 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 so that was an interesting observation so undervalued states didn't really drop, and so that this was one study they did, and so this is one product um, we have at my company, Reality Quant, which is like market valuations data. Because what I wanted to do is, okay, investors they pick their markets based on you know population, etc. Like whichever growth factors they want to use to pick their markets, but nobody has a downside risk measure. And I thought, okay, well, I should put out a downside risk measure that has statistical validity. Um, I mean, like correlation on. County level, like for 2,700 counts was like around 75%, which is less strong than the States, much harder to predict smaller geographies, you know, but but still pretty strong and, you know, and pretty valid. And so so that's one thing I did. And from there, like I was kind of kept started tracking. it. so that was at the beginning of COVID. And I started tracking, okay, quarter by quarter, quarter, where is it evolving? And US USA was really, was really fairly valid at the time. In COVID, you mean? Yeah, at the beginning of COVID, so if one computed, let's say, like in simplest terms, like price income deviations, you know, mm-hmm. or did like some of these other like other approaches, um, and you can list them out. But sort of, it's just really like fundamentals. Like where should prices be based on fundamentals? How much are they deviating off relative to that? And, and just testing it, actually, and testing it and seeing what has been predicted for, because we have this great, I mean, it's a negative event of the global financial crisis, but can help us see a, somewhat of a worst case scenario. You know, what if there was no drop, drop at all? There's like nothing to calibrate really to, in a way. And so that's kind of like a useful precedent, if you will, for at least for corrections now. Maybe a correction is not going to happen, but it's kind of like useful to have. So
0: let's talk about those those basic things we just, we mentioned about how to you, you quantify an overvalued market. You mentioned a couple of things there, population, income. What was hmm. the other one you mentioned? Housing supply. Housing supply, okay, they're the three, they're the basis of what you then deem to be the, the base level, right? So you can then compare different states, different counties, different cities. So now let's go fast forward to where we are today, right? So we're using this, we've got this baseline data. We've, we've looked back at 2008. Now we're in 2022. We've had a huge increase in valuation of properties, both single family and multifamily and you know, industrial, mass, the just on the multifamily side, I'm seeing you know doubling in prices compared to pre-COVID pricing on a, on, a, on a price per square foot or a price per pound price price per unit. You know, and I use the analogy all the time. I just sold a deal. I bought it five years ago for eighty thousand dollars. I predicted it would get to one twenty-five, so fifty percent value over five years. I sold it for 148000 $148, dollars a door just recently, yeah. like, like two weeks ago. I've seen deals in other markets where you, pre-COVID, too early, late 2019, sold $90,000 a door. Now they're selling for $190,000 a door. What's happening? Because you, you talk about these markets, Phoenix, uh, Austin, Dallas, Raleigh, Temp- uh, T- Tampa, all these markets, Denver. Can you quantify what's happening and do you, my, my, my big question is, do you see this valuation jump as sustainable or do you see it that there's some there's something in, going on that we may have a recession or you know, a, a recession at some point in the future? Now, back into the show.
1: Yeah, that, those are great questions. And actually, like, just to start the like, greed. I mean, you're, you've seen, let's say, like your asset, like growing, like double in like per unit uh, per door value, let's say, right? And I mean, in, you, know, you know, there was like very high rent growth. And so, I mean, you, you know, I'm sure for your specific asset, is it rent growth? Is it cap rate compression that's causing it? Or it's like a mix of both, right? That's yeah, yeah. so that's what's like, let's say superficially or how to say, like uh, that's what's driving it. Right? So we know there has been cap rate compression. We know that now, why is that happening, right? So let's say, um, so, with the, you know, like, and we talk about like money printing and inflation, kind of like some of the asset inflation that's causing. So, what I see on the, what in this framework, the market valuation relative to fundamentals is the following. So, what that cost in, but we know what it's cost in price space. We know it has exploded the value of assets, like, kind of to your comment. And that has like different effect in the residential space, I'm sure, and different than commercial. And I understand like there are different valuation methods, commercial multifamily and residential multifamily are not the same, right? That's understandable. Even though they have like relatively high price correlation, by the way, like about ninety-one percent, like over the long run, but but generally they're not the same thing, and in the short term they're not the same thing. But so what's causing it? Like so, if we look at like us, the asset inflation that happened, let's say, with the printing. So what does one see um, in valuation space? So not in price space, in valuation space. So what I saw in valuation space in the second and third quarter of two thousand twenty-one is that U.S. real estate went from what was a fairly valued, broadly speaking, fairly valued across the U.S. Uh, and that was actually the narrative of Bloomberg Economics as well. Like they were posting like their articles for different countries and they're showing U.S. is fairly valued in Canada, very overvalued. No, you're Australian. I think like Australia and New Zealand were actually overvalued in real estate. They're always overvalued. <laughs> okay, so they were like a kind of in Canada, like a pretty pronounced bubble, by the way. That's been since 2019. So uh, as far as, and, and then the UK to some extent, and then Scandinavia. So that was, that's Bloomberg economics. That's like near rush Track like publishing, and that was since 2019. And their study until even the, we believe they published it at the beginning of 2021, was still the same. U.S. real estate is relatively par, fairly valid. And that's what I was seeing as well. So it was fairly valid and there was Idaho and I would go to, um, you know, to to an event and I would say, okay, Idaho is overvalued, it's 25%. That was the only one, you know, it's the only one that's actually like kind of pronounced and like some others with like a at like 15%, like mild overvaluation, but you know, nothing major. And so what I saw um, is that in the second, third quarter of 2021, some of those numbers kind of doubled where they were very consistent before. So, for example, like market valuations in Texas and Florida, they were at like 8 to 10% slightly overbought range, you know, 8 to 10%. And there's obviously like booming states, you know, with tons of, um, you know, investor demand, et cetera, but they were staying every quarter, I would be kind of even like lazy to look at it because it's kind of all the same, you know, it's always the same, eight to 10%. And now suddenly, and that's just just to, to kind of to report, now in the second and third quarter, those numbers, dub, numbers doubled. So Florida and Texas from eight, 10%, they went to like 17, 18%. So it's not a major bubble, but this kind of change indicates like, I feel entering a slightly a regime of this kind. Now that can take many years to, that can take many years to, to stay like this or, or to resolve. And, and actually, if we look at before the global financial crisis, U.S. real estate in 2002 was super fairly valued. In 2001, 2002, like flat, like 0%. And by 2005, from fairly valued between 2002 and it had gone into like a bubble, like a crazy one, where some of the states went to like 40 50% overvalued. And so, and so that was, and then specific cities, you know, like even more and so forth. So that took like about three years. And then this COVID bubble, you know, like kind of burst like only two years later. So it can take a while. But what I see myself, like with some of the discussion of inflation, like some of what you were saying, okay, like you see like per door prices kind of double in the commercial space. And we've seen that a lot in the commercial space recently, with like some really um, high end, you know, high uh, return exits, you know, and and which is which is amazing. So so, so that's amazing. But but uh, what it really means is asset inflation is exceeding the fundamentals, and it really means that okay, some of the mini print money printing resulted in asset inflation, but but wage inflation wasn't quite there because if we take like Arizona, so the reason why um, like you said that some markets kind of doubled in valuation, if we take Arizona, since example, was at fifteen percent for for years before. And then suddenly second and third quarter, now it's like 31% overbought.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah, so 30%. so just to recap, you're saying historically these markets have been slightly over- overvalued, and you're saying slightly being eight to ten percent, but
1: now you're seeing Arizona's strong eight- ones. The strong ones were slightly, yes. The strong ones, um, like Florida and Texas, yeah, they were eight to ten for four years before. They went to seventeen and 18. At the, the end of third quarter of last year, and I, I haven't updated an year end yet. It, it, the governmental data is super slow, and that. But uh, but you know, yeah. So, you know, like it's kind of like a quarter back or like several months back. That is what you know. That that is what what, what is there. Idaho. It's not like everywhere. No, m- the Midwest Northeast is still undervalued. It's still undervalued. Well, have- undervalued doesn't mean it's going to do well. It's just depressed. You know, it's just depressed. It's just the, some of the strong areas that also, um, I mean, let, let me put it like this. I also run like forecasts. I use like things like Facebook profit and like different models to like forecast prices. So if I was to forecast based on the trend that is and try to forecast which place they're going to do best, they're going to be the same ones. I'm not like doomsy about Arizona. So like, do you know which So which city comes out at the very quick if I forecast 2020? To price appreciation, that's going to do the best. Boise Idaho, why? Because that has been the trend, and that's the city that has done the best. And some people, if they listen to Neil Bawa, he speaks at different events. What's the best performing city like this market cycle? It's Boise Idaho, okay. and then we have Phoenix, and then you know, and so forth, and then Denver, Colorado, etc. And so, what's the best, the highest price appreciation forecast? Boise, what is at the same time, simultaneously, the most overvalued place that has the biggest downside risk, uh, sub, subject to the market cycle ending, Boise again. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so it's simultaneously true. It's not always that the, uh, the market that is very strong is going to over, over, overvalue. In fact, at the beginning of COVID, Denver, Colorado was at 0% valuation, was fairly valued, and it had extremely boomed. It was a top, um, top five performing city in the States. Uh, like out of the big 100 cities. And yet, uh, it was fairly valid. So it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. It's just... It does tend to be at this point in the cycle, relatively later points. I can go for four more years, like I said, where I don't know. I have no information as for timing. But again, like being already 10 years into a price growth um, you know, cycle, uh, it does tend to correlate that the very well-performing markets at some point might become overwhelmed, especially if there's things like money printing and so forth. And so people tell me like, okay, if there's money printing, you know, like you hear the narrative, it's good for hard assets. Yeah, of course it's good for hard assets. It's it's true. It will, people are going to make a lot of money right now, which is amazing. But there is this perspective to keep on the back end to know like for the end of the cycle. So, So it's not again like, I would invest now in Florida or in Texas. I would just... Kind of try to manage my horizon and track those metrics quarterly and see if they go totally out of whack or something like this.
0: And what what do you mean by track those um, metrics quarterly?
1: So at every point of time, you can have a price where real estate should be, like based on its fundamentals, like like it's a disregression based study. So you can have and and then what is the valuation under fair overvaluation relative to that? What percentages is this relative to that? So tracking this quarterly is um, is you know, basically I think like what is useful, in my opinion, for um, for investors because it, it can change. So it can go into a very different regime. I kind of like some of the comment in 2021, kind of things entering a little bit different. It's not so bad. i not saying it's, it is, but, uh, but it's just in some of the Western markets, um, you know, specifically Idaho, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, and Colorado. Those are, I would say, the five that kind of things started entering a little bit of a uh, A little bit of an artificial regime, it seems. And it's also because wage growth didn't really, didn't match all that. You know, there's like all the money printing, the result in asset growth, but it didn't result in wage growth. Wage growth in the first half of 2021 in Arizona was 1%, Hmm. actually. So now I'm actually hoping that maybe that's going to change. So if wage growth, you know, was to, um, you know, to, to spike also with inflation to some extent, you know, it could kind of come down a little bit. And I'm actually kind of hoping for that. I hope that some of this is a little bit of a short-term spike. But, yeah, and, you know, really for cities, like I can mention, like, I mean, Boise is, like, the one that is kind of very pronounced. I've spoken at that since already since 2020, kind of, like, about Boise. It's kind of funny because it sounds like, you know, like some of those doomsy things. But it's really, you know, like I said, it's also at the top of my price appreciation forecast. It's just a question of where, which... Is the cycle gonna end or not? And where, where do you think the cycle is right now? I don't know. <laughs> I have no information for that. That's like, like I'm saying, I have no information as for timing. But one thing I can say is that because you said like, can some of those markets that are doing so well then maybe that they stop doing so well because it's just like too much and uh, and whatever. It doesn't seem like this kind of dynamic. I don't see in the date. It seems that there's trend. So like I I looked at like different states and. Markets and auto and there's like auto correlation is one of the measures for like weak for market efficiency and kind of trend and momentum, and so like auto correlation correlation this year price growth versus last year price growth, in places like I know in Florida, abroad and then different in specific like cities there is like seventy seven percent, and then in Texas is like a thing around sixty three percent, still relatively, relatively strong. So there is a lot of momentum in real estate. So markets that do well they will continue to do well. And another study I did is um, until the market cycle ends. though. And so you just need like, it's not like a measure, your measure of downside risk is going to tell you not to invest there. I don't think so. Those are going to be the same markets are going to do really well again. It's just that this is still your measure of downside risk after this. You just can, you know, that's dependent on your risk tolerance. You know, do you want to you know, kind of risk go for two years? Are you very much over the long run in a, on a seven-year investment, 10-year investment, five, et cetera? It's just a kind of like your risk tolerance from there. But that's a, you know, this is just kind of an analysis to do. And so um, for pr- uh, one thing I did for price appreciation, since you know, like investors, they often like look at different fundamentals, like population, et cetera. And I'm just going to share for your audience, like maybe it, m- it would be interesting for them in their market selection is. So they did a study where, okay, did, I predicted population, like I took the population growth time series, you know, and kind of predicted, and took the income growth time series and kind of predicted, and took the housing supply and kind of predicted, and then predicted prices of that, and then compared that to just predicting the prices themselves, and the error was five times bigger hmm. for predicting forecasting prices two year ahead, like 2018 and 2019 prices based on the whole price history before that which is kind of was a, an easy years to predict, kind of a very simple trend, right? But, um, but let's say, uh, but the error was actually just like 1.4% if you just predict the price time, so in this kind of normal trend. And once the trend diverges, you cannot predict anything and it's different, right? And that's actually in 2021 happened to the an extent and the error, error increased. But, um, but yes, but so five times bigger error for actually doing the fundamental, which is inherently think about whatever investor does. He looks up, looks up income growth, looks up all that, And then in in first, you know that, okay, prices are going to do well. But if you take, let's say, that um, population growth has been very strong over the past decade or so forth in that specific market, well, it's already reflected in the price. But there are more things that are reflected in the price, and by modeling the the input variables, you kind of miss on that, and you end up with a bigger error. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of a study. If you want to actually try technically to forecast prices, you have a five times bigger error by looking at, Kind of what every investor does in a way, right? It's quite interesting. So it's in the, the, the outcome of this. So it's like such a simple thing. You actually can just look at price time series and you would have done better and predicted things better, which is quite interesting. Um, price
0: time series might be something that a lot of people listeners wouldn't understand, but 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 that's, that's okay. I, I think we, we're understanding that what you're f- we're trying to get at is that if you're looking at these markets right now as They've been strong historically, right, through recessions, that they should continue to be resilient for a downside risk. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Um like like take your Denver, take your Austin's, take your Charlotte's mm. that they've seen what well, because that's really the fundamental
1: no, question here, right? No, no, not not like that. No, actually, no, because you're saying um, you're saying the ones that are on the price appreciation strong that they would be resilient on the downside risk. Correct. This is, I know, yeah, this is kind of, mm, that's not what I see in the data. You know, one could think intuitively that that could be the case. Right. No, it's actually, in fact, the opposite. It, it, and in fact, some of the strongest markets at this moment, they carry the biggest downside risk at the same time. Mm. And they yeah. have, like I said, the, the strongest price appreciation forecasts, too. Because Again, and that comes down to, like, to the earlier discussion of real estate dynamic on the downside of, for example, in very poor states. Like, to observe this, one can look at a place like West Virginia, right? So it's kind of the poorest state in the country. It never has any downside risk. It didn't have before the World yes, to, yep. It doesn't have now. So it doesn't drop. Like Prices in weaker markets have less exposure to downturn. And that is the real estate specific I feel dynamic. That's different from the stock market, where in the stock market, you actually have like all of those weak companies, they sort of carry bigger risk. They're more volatile. And in real estate, in that sense, it's not. And that can be seen in another way. Like I used to like look at like volatility in different real estate markets. And that's one of the ways I was trying to predict actually this kind of downside risk. And I looked at foreclosure rates and others in foreclosure. rates. another thing that doesn't predict, by the way, that kind of like mm. leading foreclosure rates also don't predict like downturns. Because for example, a very big foreclosure state is the state of New Jersey, but it's very undervalued right now. And it's just not going anywhere. Those prices cannot drop because it's nobody wants to invest in New Jersey. And, and so, and yet it has the, the highest foreclosure rates you know in the country. Mm. So it's not a leading predictor. And it's also like foreclosure rates, they're very, whoa when you're at a very favorable market cycle point like now so they're like okay it's the highest one but it is very low well for quarter rates overall so it might shuffle you know and change later um but really it's not a predictor in this sense so yeah so volatility like i looked at and so like even places like those poor states that don't perform well they may look good in risk adjusted terms you know like when the way in finance people would look at like price returns and then scale returns by volatility they might look somewhat favorable but that's Illusory. Really. That's not useful. I think, in a genuine sense, every investor knows intuitively which have been the strong markets: the markets to the west and the markets to the south, and in the, you know this market cycle. But and so and so volatility and this kind of risk perspective and downside in real estate is quite interesting. And no, unfortunately, it's 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 the strong you know like strong performing markets that are exposed. Some of them may not be very exposed. And even like you know, Atlanta, Georgia, Atlanta is is a strong market, it's not overvalued. It was actually fairly valued as of latest. Um, whether some other I mean, kind of average strong market, but somewhat popular with something something like Louisville, Kentucky's, was I think even slightly undervalued, was still fair or undervalued. So there there are places that are. There are places that still were working okay in valuation terms. We take like something like the state of Indiana, it has done performed well in price terms, this market cycle? No, not as good as the Western markets, of course, but it has had healthy appreciation. Healthy, you know, not like stagnant appreciation. And, and so, and yet it's fairly valid. So that's like another example. Um, so, so it's not like super many or super attractive markets that at this point have left, you know, kind of a wall hanging fruit, you know, to pick. I would say they're kind of few and they're like not, so, you know, not so exciting in a way, it's like more like those average ones, but it becomes like this risk selection of, do you want, do you want to have downside? Like how do you get downside protection, for example? If you're in an undervalued county and an undervalued state, your prices are basically not going to drop. So, that was the case, if you look at like Vinny Chopra was at my webinar. He bought like his first syndication in 2008. So his syndication had a crazy high RR of like 45%. Apparently it was a great deal, okay, that's separate. The deal was great, okay. Had like a very, very, very good deal, but he bought it in 2008, the peak. I mean, there are so many people who um, purchased it around that time and, um, you know, like, you know, like Cleve. he has like his lecture about losing 50 million, and then gaining 50 million, right? You mm-hmm. know, this kind of thing. And there were many people like that who lost like the majority of their network during that time but they were not in Texas. They were not in mm-hmm. Texas. They were in Florida, they were in, you know, uh, perhaps Arizona or, or in other places. And so Trooper actually buying in 2008, that didn't hurt him at all, because there was no drop at all. There was like, I mean, about 4%, like with incomes, because incomes dropped 4%, and so forth, but it was negligible. And if you bought an asset that's undervalued, that's gonna perform well, you're not even gonna see it in your p or or anything. And so that's quite interesting. And so it depends, again, on risk tolerance. So, so if one wants, because again, like the strong markets are going to be the same ones. It's going to be, again, the markets to the West. It's going to be the markets to the South. But now, and they're even probably going to be even stronger now with all the momentum kind of building up and just a selection of, okay, do you want to capture like these like crazy returns for several years, unknown how many years or how much time, but simultaneously carry the downside risk during this time? Or maybe go in a kind of middle ground, you know, in places like the Midwest, like Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, kind of, you know, kind of places. Got it. Um, or, yeah, or you want to even go if you're like crazy risk averse or you want to go in something crazy undervalued, you know, like the Northeast, where, okay, your price appreciation is going to be weak, but you also have carry like no downside risk whatsoever because prices are not going to go anywhere. So it's just like from there. Is, but it's just like an additional variable to be aware of. And, and so, yeah, so I've been kind of like... Um, building like adding like i feel like adding to like the investor arsenal in a way like yeah
0: it's hmm. it's a very interesting space you're in and clearly you're passionate about what you do and so as we come to the end of the show i want to give you an opportunity to give one piece of advice to investors today as they're entering the market what would that advice be in and around observing
1: certain trends yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so in and around that, uh, so I would say to pick their markets based on, so two, two, two pieces of advice, like I said, based on um, appreciation, not looking at like open events, just looking at the prices themselves. It sounds silly, but that's actually more accurate for predicting appreciation. And then, two, they can come to like my company or or they can compute themselves, use governmental data like run, I don't know, do like simple calcs of price income ratios and other stuff. And they can like get, um, get a sense of some kind of numerical measure of, of valuation and track that. And so it's kind of like I really urge them, like my advice is to don't invest in a market if you don't know where it's borrowed. Like I don't invest in the stock market now myself because I don't know its valuation. I don't know if it's overvalued. It's just the, the hype, the statements, it's overvalued. But, but I would say the same in 2020 and I don't actually know. The reason why i don't know is it cannot i don't know how to value technology companies but in real estate you have the incredible opportunity that it's a simple fundamental asset that's not that's not the technology sector it's actually easy and so i feel like people have this skepticism that oh you you know how, well, how are you going to predict anything you know and they have this kind of thing like from finance that oh we should just give up on the whole thing like go together just drop it you know but in reality that's real estate is not the place to drop it it's the opposite. It's kind of like utility stocks or something. They're easy to predict. And so, and so, yeah, so the kind of my advice is don't invest in a market just because it's hot or it's trendy, but know its uh, exact valuation. Have a percentage, whichever way you derive it in your own approach, have a percentage assigned to it, know its valuation, know why that matters, where has that percentage been in before the global financial crisis, how that has affected like, subsequent declines, etc. So, so yes, just have a measure of market valuation is my advice.
0: Awesome. Awesome stuff. Uh, Stefan, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show today. Where do people go? They want to jump on your website. They want to understand the valuation. Maybe you do it for people. Um, if, you know, yeah. if you've got some charts that you can get, come on your website and have a look at, where will they go?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this data is actually published at realtyquant.com for like 2,700 U.S. counties. Um, so, yeah, so they can look it up there. Um, I do it like pretty much as a service to the community in a big extent, honestly. So, it's uh, uh, so yeah, realitycon.com. They can, can also look up my YouTube channel, Finance Meets Real Estate on YouTube, and they can look me up on LinkedIn as well. That's awesome.
0: That's awesome, mate. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show today. I just want to reflect some of the things that I took away from today's show. Firstly, is that you're extremely knowledgeable about You know, geeking out on the engineering part of the financing side and bringing that financial engineering meets real estate. I think that is super important to break down and look at historical trends about where we've come from to get a sense of maybe where we're going, but but also to your to what you're saying before, how to protect your downside. Right. If you're in certain markets, you're going to have certain downside risk versus other markets. And understanding where the valuation of those markets are relative to history is really, really important to, to, to make your educated decision on whether you venture into that market. So I highly encourage everyone to head over to RealtyQuant. That's Q-U-A-N-T dot Check out everything Stefan is doing over there because he is crushing it. And it's all relatively accessible, right? You, you're giving out this data for free. So get over there, check it out. And um, anything else you want to add before we wrap? Um, no, that's it. No really. Thanks for hosting. It was great. Awesome stuff, my friend. Well, look, thanks again for jumping on today's show. Enjoy the rest of your week and your weekend, and we'll catch up very, very soon. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Stefan. If you want to get over to his website, go to realtyquant.com to check out all the market evaluations across, I think he's had over 200 different counties across the United States. Uh, I want to thank you all again for tuning in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. And if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a five-star review on iTunes. And we're going to do it all again next week. So remember, Be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack.